to say something really deeply profound? I think about the pursuit of happiness. It's <laughs> <laughs> making it's us making all us anxious. anxious. <laughs> yeah, and really Brilliant. <laughs> so that's one of your five points. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Hi, I'm Charlotte Philby, and I'm recording at Penguin with. Ruth Whitman, who is the author of the brilliant new book, The Pursuit of Happiness and Why It's Making Us Anxious. Um, a disclaimer at the beginning, Ruth is a very good friend of mine. We met when we were both doing antenatal classes with our eldest children uh, five years ago. Um, and Ruth at the time was working in TV. I think you were doing the first series of uh, One Born Every Minute. Yes, it was, a, it was a spin-off show from One Born Every Minute called Bringing Baby Home. And yeah. it was this weird thing because I'd come back off um, maternity leave um, and, it, you know, my baby was nine months old and I was making a show about other people's babies being nine months old. And so I watched while my child was with a nanny at home, I was watching while everybody else's child was taking their first steps and saying their first words and everything. And it was the most horribly distressing experience. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yes. Yeah. So. Well, I remember you sort of trotting off to America and I remember the sort of parting words. You were like, yeah, I think I might. TV's not working. I think I might uh, give journalism a go. And I was like, oh, yeah. I mean, you can't just be brilliant at be brilliant at TV and then just be brilliant at journalism. It doesn't work like that. And then it turns out you were completely brilliant at journalism, and you wrote this piece for the New York Times about the sort of American obsession with happiness, um, which I believe became the sort of basis for the book. Yes. So tell us a bit about moving to America and how you got there. So we moved to California. Yeah, it was about five years ago, and um, it. It came, it was pretty early on as I started to realise just what a kind of cultural obsession it was that people were really kind of agonising and stressing out about their own happiness. And I was having all these conversations, you know, I'd meet mums in the playground or people, you know, random people through my husband's work or, you know, actually once it even happened when I was having my smear test at the gynaecologist and people would be like, you know, I don't think I'm really happy enough and maybe I'm not with the right person and maybe, you know, maybe I could be, you know, doing something more about it. I could be happier and maybe I'll try meditation or, or yoga or, you know, some kind of self-help book. And it was almost like there was this real anxiety around the topic of happiness. And the people who were trying all these different ways to become happier really didn't seem that happy. So I started to look into the kind of data of it all. And there are lots of international comparison studies that have been done about, um, you know, which countries the happiest and are you happier if you live in Sweden or Saudi Arabia or wherever. And the United States really falls right down at the bottom of the heap for those countries. You know, it's one of the least happy countries in the developed world. So it's kind of this paradox where, you know, you've got a bunch of people who are really putting a huge amount of effort and time and energy and money into becoming happier, but yet they're some of the least happy people, you know, on the planet. So that was kind of my starting point for, for writing the book. And, you know, I just wanted to probe that a bit more and find out, you know, what was actually going wrong with, with the way that people were looking for happiness. <laughs> you talk a lot in the book about the sort of the business of happiness and at one stage if I just look to I think you say or you quote somebody that that the happiness is that happiness is a two billion dollar industry 11 billion dollar yeah. 11 billion dollar yeah. wow okay it's about the same size as Hollywood 
Yeah, so um, there is, yeah, as you say, this is a huge industry that is out to kind of sell us happiness. I mean, you know, there's an $11 billion self-help industry in the kind of traditional sense, and that has kind of exploded with all of these more spiritual type pursuits like mindfulness or meditation and yoga. You know, all these things, we're spending, you know, a lot of money on trying to become happier. But um, really, if you look at the happiness research, there's a huge body of, of um, academic research and studies which show that the real, like the single most important source of happiness for, for people is other people. So our social relationships and our communities. And as you say, you know, spending time with other people makes us happier, not just on a kind of abstract level, but on a kind of really moment to moment, day to day. If you measure people's happiness moment to moment, they are literally happier when they're spending time with others than when they're on their own. And I think in many ways, the commercial self-help industry is really pushing us in slightly the wrong direction. You know, it's really pushing us to see happiness as something that's very focused on yourself. So it's this very individualistic kind of personal journey that you look really deep within yourself and you really remake yourself from, from within. But really, we should be looking sort of outside ourselves for happiness. You know, that's what the research says. And, you know, we should be spending time with other people and, you know, not focusing on ourselves. One thing I think is very interesting, sort of obviously as part of Motherland, we speak to a lot of women in particular who um, have recently had children or have recently had second children. And there's often that sort of sense at that time, I think, when people sort of reassess what they're doing, what they're doing with their life, um, what they want from life and what ultimately will make them happy. Um, And I'm interested to sort of to hear, you know, your experiences of that, because I feel personally like every time I have a child, which, you know, which sounds often. insane, which is, which is quite, <laughs> quite regularly, <laughs> three times in the last five years, hopefully <laughs> the last time. Um, yeah, I, you know, I have a moment where I start to question what I should be doing, where I should be going. And I, when I actually take a step back and look more rationally at what I'm doing, I realize I'm actually unsettling what happiness I do have in my life. And I'm totally fixating on the next moment and imagining the grass to be greener and thinking, oh, maybe if I moved somewhere it was hot or maybe if I moved somewhere where my children would have more space to run around or may-. and constantly looking to the other side. I'm actually completely missing what's happening now and the, the moments that could potentially be making me happy if I was to actually be present in them. Absolutely. I think... Um... You're right. I mean, definitely on the point that motherhood, you know, and having kids is a time to kind of assess our lives and see where we're going. But absolutely that this idea that, you know, there's this kind of blissful, happy ever after out there that if we just do another thing or do another kind of yoga class or another meditation session or another something or we move to the country or we, you know, I don't know, join a self-help group, then we can have that kind of glittering happy ever after. But it just keeps on moving further and further away. And along the way you miss all the the happiness that is happening right now and it is a very anxiety inducing state for people that you're kind of it's like a treadmill that you know there's more there's the next there's happier there's happier and I think social media kind of drives this to a large extent that you know you've got this kind of rolling inventory of everyone else's complete blissed out wonder and everybody else's kids look clean and nobody ever cries on social media and nobody ever has a tantrum and everybody's you know everyone's parenting and everyone's sort of hash feeling blessed all the time and I think that can really sort of stress us out and make us feel that we're missing out and that our lives are kind of falling short in comparison I think that's 
totally what I was going to sort of move to my next point, which is about the fact that I think we've become obsessed with looking at other people's ha happiness as an indication and a measure against which we should be assessing our own rather than just sort of getting on with the day. And I guess we've sort of lost that slight, in Britain at least, that slight post-war mentality of like, well, we're lucky to be alive and we've got food on the table now, yeah. you know, and not having necessarily people live more disparate lives in terms of, you know, their family. People tend to be more, can be more isolated and we sort of derive our sense of self and of where we sit within the community from social media and from unrealistic and actually probably completely false constructs of other people's lives, um, which I think is really interesting. But I also... The other thing I've noticed from sort of speaking to parents and particularly mums about their ambitions for their own children, a lot of the time, you know, it, it, you when, traditionally when you would hear about people wanting their children to do well, it would all be about, you know, I'd like them to be a lawyer, I'd like them to have financial security, I would like them to, you know, these sort of like more traditional measures of a life. And now a lot of it comes down to you want your child to be happy, you want them to be content, You it doesn't matter what they're do, you know what they do with their lives as long as they're happy and that's actually the name of one of the chapters of your book which is I don't care as long as he's happy dispatches from the parenting happiness rat race tell us a bit about that well I think there is this kind of um almost sort of nebulous goal at the moment that we want our kids to be happy and of course every parent the world over wants their child to be happy I mean in, in the broad sense of the world but I think in the broad sense of the word but I think what's what's changed is that's become almost like a kind of minute by minute project that we want our kids to be so happy and we um, want their every experience to be wonderful and their lives to be absolutely optimized on every measure and for them to be prepared for every eventuality and we really find we really struggle to cope with our children's kind of negative emotions at the moment and I'm terrible about this I mean I um, the absolute worst for kind of running around in front of my in front of my child, kind of painting every wall and making every you know every situation great for him. This quite this stressful to want to kind of fix constantly everything have their parent in the background. Are you happy? Are you happy now? Totally. Are you happy? You know, can I, They're so intuitive. You know, I think they really you know. And, and the one thing I think, I think all just I think if you look at research, it shows. But also just by talking to people and just common sense. And speaking to children, the thing that makes them happy is when their parents are happy, <laughs> when you know, and and genuinely happy, like content, or you know, d d stress is what feeds their stress. And if they can feel us feeling stressed about their happiness, it's like this kind of bonkers cycle. But also, I we wrote um, we ran a piece on Motherland by Wendy Eyde, who's another brilliant friend of ours actually, yeah. <laughs> um, and she wrote a she's a film critic and she was writing about why it's important to to allow children to be scared in film and sort of relating it to the world in general and it's that idea of sort of being able to work through emotions and to realize that the world isn't you know always sort of bathed in gold light but you can come out through difficult situations and things will work out in the end and just you know learning to actually accept appreciate and work through different emotions which absolutely and i think that um you know it's absolutely right that to be happy we need to embrace positive and negative emotions like the full range of our kind of emotional capacity and i think that the British actually used to be, traditionally, were very good at embracing negative emotions. I mean, that's kind of a polite way of putting it. But, you know, we're good at moaning, we're good at complaining, we're good at sort of saying why things are, are rubbish. And, you know, in a way, that's not such a bad thing, because what you see in America is this real pressure to be kind of positive and for everything to be happy and shiny and wonderful, which 
since we've been away from the UK, I feel like that's kind of crept back across to, to Britain as well. And this kind of, you know, emphasis on happiness. It's, you know, the even the government's involved in happiness. There's Happiness Day, there's Positivity Day, there's all these challenges on social media. So this pressure that, you know, that things should always be shiny and wonderful is really quite stressful for people because, you know, if we do have negative emotions, which everybody does, you know, not being able to talk about those and embrace them and feel that, you know, that we're normal is a big part of that. And I think especially for our kids, you know, they're just learning to deal with their emotions. And I think this kind of pressure that, that you know, you're somehow letting down your parents if you're not constantly happy, I think is very stressful for kids. Definitely. I also think that for, in terms of them sort of building empathy for other people, they need to understand that people have other mo- other emotions. Like, I find I get so stressed out a lot of them I mean I've got three kids I'm working you know the the usual pressures I mean there's no sort of like terrible life events but as you say in your book you know they're first world problems which you know you often sort of kind of feel are invalid emotions and that you're not allowed to sort of talk about them because you know ostensibly everything's fine but sometimes I do get stressed out and my you know I just break down crying not in a you know but more in a sort of you know my husband rolls his eyes and so gosh she's crying again and it's got to the stage now where my daughter just sort of like oh you're right mommy gives me a little (laughs) pat on my head and sort of you know trots on and I actually feel that's much healthier than there being this sort of you know like quietly weeping in the bedroom feeling that you can't inflict your unreasonable behavior and emotions onto your children for fear of the fact that they might sort of pick up on them and be scarred for life um and I think also when we're looking particularly post-birth, a lot of women are feeling massively hormonal. And, you know, it's a, it's a time where even if you're not suffering from postnatal depression, there still needs to be an honesty about life being, you know, about about the challenges and about the fact that you don't always feel blissful, even if life is, you know, sort of fine. So, yeah, I mean, this whole phrase sort of first world problems, I mean, I guess it's, you know, it's important to have some perspective and realise that, you know, obviously we're not we're not starving here. But at the same time, there will always be somebody starving. And, you know, I think that it, to invalidate all your genuine emotions by saying there's somebody worse off than you is kind of can be quite dismissive. And I think, you know, it's kind of used as a way of shutting people up in a way. It's like, oh, God, you're in your first world problems. But, you know, really, our emotions are what makes us human. And if nothing matters, then nothing matters. You know, if you if you can't... You know, if you can't sort of take your own emotions seriously, then, you know, then what's the point of being alive, really? But, you know, and it's the same way for our kids. Absolutely. That, you know, I think this kind of pressure that we put on, we have this very kind of hovering nervous approach. And I think we take on these very um, intense kind of parenting philosophies and we buy all these kind of parenting manuals to kind of make them happier and happier. When actually it's not really our job to... To make them happy i mean it's our job to create the conditions under which they can be happy but you know you can't be responsible for another person's happiness you cannot do it and just to try is a hiding to nothing i mean you're just going to stress them out in the process absolutely and i guess you see that by virtue of the fact that you can have three children and they will all respond differently in different situations they will all feel differently people are individuals and you can't sort of program how they're going to react, feel and react to things I, as you say I guess it's about sort of creating the foundations on which they can be the best version of themselves or you know however you sort of want to put it what did you find 
in terms of where people were happiness is it i imagine it's one of the scandinavian countries because you know they get everything right denmark (laughs) obviously yeah (laughs) people always happy in denmark although this is the problem with happiness research is that that you know it's a very sort of fickle field this whole happiness science and you know depending on kind of what methodology you use and what kind of um you know how you define happiness and how you go about the study you can find a happiness study to find, to say anything you want to if you so want it's like the internet basically yeah it's like the internet i mean if you want to make the point that women are happier than men that men are happier than women that parents are happier that money is the most important thing that money doesn't matter you know that religion's important that religion's not important there is a study out there to say you know there's a like for instance usually most happiness studies say that denmark's the happiest country but in my google alerts yesterday i got a uh, a a um, notification. Alert, a notification saying now Saudi Arabia is the happiest country. Wow. So, you know, I think a lot, it sort of ends up saying more about the people who do the studies rather than, it, than you know, because, and the agenda yeah. behind those studies than it does about the actual kind of realities of human emotion. But, to then contradict what I'm about <laughs> to say, but, but there is, um, there's been some pretty kind of robust research to show that countries where they have a kind of stronger welfare state and stronger provisions and stronger kind of, um, you know, social provision for people and stronger communities tend to be happier. And obviously back to Scandinavia, you know, the Scandinavian dream, you know, they do, they do score very highly in these happiness studies. And does there tend to be, um, does it tend to be demarcated by uh, levels of wealth? Happiness? Yeah. So that's an interesting one because the um, the self-help industry are very, very keen on this message that money doesn't matter to happiness and that your circumstances don't matter to happiness. And this is kind of a way of really selling us more happiness products because this idea that, you know, under any circumstances, if you just follow this path or read this book, then you can be happy kind of you know is a great message for them you know that's it's a kind of inspiring message in the sense but actually yes of course money matters to happiness so there are um studies to show that that money is a very very significant source of happiness and people at the low income end of the scale are much more stressed and evaluate their lives as much more much um you know have have a general much poorer evaluation of their own happiness than people who are wealthy but I think there's this real message and when you see these studies reported in the press they often kind of report them in a way that makes it sound like money is unimportant because maybe there's sort of one measure of happiness that it doesn't affect but actually I think that's you know it's it's a very convenient message for the self-help industry that money is not important to happiness because you know it's harder to change your financial circumstances than it is to buy a book. Your book is so funny. I mean, it's really smart and it's and it makes some really valid points and, you know, it's sort of really thought-provoking, but ultimately it's also very, very funny. Um, but tell us about some of the examples you give in the book of the kind of... Um, you talk about self-directed play and the kind of um, techniques that, um, you know, not parents necessarily in California, but that are pretend, pretend to be particularly um, popular in the States. Well, I mean, I think the big thing at the moment in um, parenting in in California where we live is this whole idea of attachment parenting. So this is the idea that, you know, your parent, your child should be like physically attached to you as much as possible. 
and you know I don't think there's anything wrong with that with that message but I think it, people take it to extremes and I remember there was this one I talk about it in the book but you know I once went over to a friend's house and she was telling me that she'd left her two and a half year old with another mother for um to pop to the bank or run an errand and the the other mother breastfed her child <laughs> because she was such an extreme attachment parent that yeah. you know the idea that a child could be crying for milk and that you wouldn't feed them was you know seen as this, this was she still thing. was was the friend whose child was, was breastfed still breastfeeding herself so she was still breastfeeding okay. herself but not that much you know yeah. maybe like once a day or something but yeah. i mean you know and it's one thing to kind of breastfeed a, a newborn that's like trapped in a snowstorm or something but yeah. to breastfeed a two and a half year old when the, the mum's gone for an hour does seem at least to me maybe a little excessive oh and there's people you know i think the whole thing there is you know that that parenting requires a philosophy and there are many of them and in California it tends to be you know that they tend to skew towards the the kind of child-centered shall we say so it's all about kind of doing the most for your child and being the most kind of loving and whatever and you see these hilarious recommendations where like you know is your toddler having a tantrum give them a relaxing foot massage with some invigorating essential oils. Or, you know, I would and... love to... to... <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to see someone try and give my toddler a foot massage. <laughs> no, it's like the morning rush to school, you know, give him a foot massage. And then, <laughs> or, you know, it'll be... Oh, I came across this woman once in this toddler um, um, kinder gym type thing where it was like a toddler playgroup. And the, the the kid tried to give um, another kid a toy to play with. It was a, this kind of fire engine. And, and he was actually trying to share with this other kid. And the mum kind of barrels in and snatches the toy back off the other kid and gives it back to her own child and says, we're teaching him he doesn't always have to share. And, you know, this was a whole thing about, you know, teaching a child to be assertive and that he should be happy in every situation. But sometimes these things can verge on being a little bit bizarre. Insane. <laughs> Insane yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because when we when we left um, the UK, it was almost like the complete opposite philosophy. So it was all about routines. And Gina Ford was the big kind of baby guru at the time. And it was all about, you know, scheduling your child and not kind of, you know, I used to hear a lot about, you know, your baby's trying to manipulate you by crying. And, yeah. you know, that was a phrase that I used to hear a lot. And it was all about discipline. And then they kind of grew up and it was all the naughty step and enforcing boundaries. And then in California, it was the complete opposite. And if, you know, I remember this one time that I saw this um, kid in the park having this big meltdown and the mother was standing there going, how can I support you through this <laughs> to the child? And, you know, you just, it, but it's the kind of complete other end of the parenting spectrum. But what you start to realise is that, you know, after seeing it play out over a few years and with having had a couple of kids myself, you realise that in a way it doesn't actually matter which one of these things you're doing. You know, whether you're doing the strict routines and that, you know, don't let your baby manipulate you or whether you're kind of breastfeeding everyone else's kids in the park and not, you know, carrying your two stone toddler in a in a sling all the time. Because, you know, the outcome, your, your children will probably be fine. And the real problem is just how intensely you're approaching it. I think, you know, if you're a very, very intense parent and you're always thinking about it and overthinking it and analysing it and wondering how to make your kid as happy as possible, it doesn't matter which way you're going about it. It's the very fact of that intensity that Absolutely. I think is stressful for kids. Absolutely. Um, it, it seems like it's just, you know, common sense that actually you just want your child to sort of develop their own behaviours and their own responses to things. And I know that I have... It's sort of... It's waned slightly over time, but... 
at first when my daughter was younger if there if there seemed to be like an altercation or a situation that was happening that I felt wasn't sort of moving in the right direction I would feel this like urge to go and sort of in, interject and you know like manage the situation for them but I remember somebody far more sort of sensible and experienced saying to me that actually you know it's really important for them just to sort of work things out on their own and just to back off a bit absolutely and my mum never used to get involved in any of that stuff for me I just I have no memory of her being I mean obviously she'd, she'd get involved if there was a terrible problem but she wasn't kind of hovering over me and micromanaging all my friendships and all of my things I mean you see this hilarious thing in the in the playgrounds of California and every time I see it sort of start to unfold my heart kind of sinks but you know you get two kids and they're kind of fighting over some toy in the playground or something and they'll, they'll start kind of you know pulling each other's hair or whatever and both of the parents will kind of swoop in and they'll be like you know let's begin the negotiations and it starts to feel like you know the UN General Assembly or something and they'll be like so you know Stephen tell me what it is about this situation that isn't working for you and you know expecting this two or three year old to kind of come, come up with to, a rational response yeah and they're just like I hate him or yeah. whatever. Yeah. And, you know, but then they're, they're trying to... And really, these things are more about the parents than they are about the kids. Totally. You know, it's well, very overbearing. It seems like... I mean, there, there's a lot of research that shows that one of the reasons... One of the sort of fundamental reasons why um, countries like Sweden, where they don't uh, enforce sort of reading and writing until kids are seven years old one of the reasons that form of education is much more effective and you know has better sort of long-term outcomes is because it enables kids to work things out for themselves and you know to go through processes without having everything sort of forced onto them in these sort of weird constrained ways and I think that's exactly the same with behaviour and I mean it's it's so fundamental like just let them work it out and they will come to a conclusion and then next time they'll be able to sort of negotiate their way through more effectively I sort of sometimes you know I'll be sort of eavesdropping when my daughter or you know the the younger ones are upstairs with friends and listening to a situation that I think is going to unfold in one way and then they just come to some sort of brilliant resolution and it's absolutely fine and then everyone sort of totters off happily and and they don't need you. Yeah, they absolutely. Don't need you. And that's how they develop those skills. But I think it's also partly, and you're an exception to this. Do you mind? I don't hope you don't mind me no. saying, but, um, you know, a lot of us are having kids much later in life than we were. And so, you know, I had my um, first child at 36 and my second child at 39. And, you know, in our, we were obviously in the same NCT group. And, you know, you were, what, 27 when you had yeah. your first kid? And it was almost like this teenage mother had arrived in the group. It's like, 27, are you sure? You know, it feels very irresponsible. But I think that, you know, if you have kids in your late 30s or, you know, early 40s, then it's, you know, it, you've had two decades of kind of accomplishing things and, you know, controlling things and getting to a point in your career where you're kind of, you know, you're in charge and you're in control. And I think then you take those same principles and try to apply them to being a parent. And really, it's almost like the opposite needs to happen, that you just need to back off a little bit. And it's the same, it absolutely is the same principle when it comes to our own happiness, you know, that you just need to take a step back and just start living your life rather than trying to focus on this goal of being... Yeah, sort of micromanaging situations and troubleshooting and, like, your happiness is a project that you need to sort of get through point by point. What I think is quite interesting that you mentioned in the book, uh, you talk about sort of workaholics, and in particular in America there's, like, a culture of working where 
people feel like they need to be the last person in the office and there is just like an inflexibility and what's the average amount of time that people take for holidays something like two weeks or something oh yeah well america is the only country in the world where there's no legally enforced um holiday time at all so a lot of people don't take any holiday yeah um you know there was some statistic that americans give up something like 52 billion dollars worth of days off every year just by you know their their company will give them but they just literally won't take them cause yeah because there's a culture of yeah. not wanting to be seen to be like the weakest member of the team or whatever absolutely i think that's really interesting but i do think that they're sort of that's on one end of the, the spectrum and i do feel like definitely in my experience from working just in in the uk is that a lot of people f- feel like either you need to be really achieving at work and particularly women who are returning to work you there's this like on one end of the spectrum, you don't want to feel like you're the person who's always leaving first, the person who's always getting there late, the person who's having to take time off because your kid's sick. You know, a conflict in terms of um, how committed you seem to the job. Also, a sense on the other end of the of the spectrum where because you women can have it all, that you should be able to have it all. And so not only should you have a job that is that you're completely committed to and that you're succeeding in, but you also need a job that is fulfilling. So that is a lot of things to be asking for a job. You know, it needs to be able to, you need to be, it needs to make you happy. And I think a lot of that is to do with the fact that because childcare is so inaccessible and so expensive and a lot of people spend so much time commuting that actually going to work a lot of the time you're sort of paying more than you're actually getting paid <laughs> absolutely yeah i think and and it's interesting the way that we define women's work as you know nobody ever says to my husband oh does the child care does your working cover the child care it's not seen as our joint income that we pay for child care it's like the child care is a replacement for me you know and not a replacement for him so you know i think we definitely talk about our work in, in that way and yeah it's the, it's the same thing it's this pressure that we have to be living the best life and everything has to be so incredibly fulfilling and wonderful at all times and our work has to be great and our you know social lives and everything and i think that can put a lot of pressure on people i wrote a chapter in the book about um religion and um uh, what i do in that chapter is i go and spend some time with the mormons in in utah and this is a very, very traditional culture where men go out to work, women stay home, they have lots and lots of kids. And it's a culture that really, really prioritises happiness and feeling happy and kind of happiness is seen as this sort of mark of virtue and whatever. And so, you know, I don't know if you've seen any of these. It's a big thing in the States, these kind of Mormon mommy blogs where you see these Mormon women and it's, you know, they have these blogs and they're doing all these wonderful craft projects and they have seven children in like matching outfits and they're all kind of gleaming and blonde and everything looks perfect and the mother's like feeling blessed and you look at that situation and I would, you know, look at that situation, you know, and my kind of laundry basket would be overflowing and my toddler would be kind of like turning the rubbish bin over and like smearing himself with feces or something and you know and I'd look over at these Mormon mommy blogs and think oh my god you know maybe I should be staying home and having this idyllic life and everything would be wonderful if I wasn't stressing myself out about you know liberal feminist principles and working and everything but in the book I go and stay with a Mormon family for a while and you know it took a while to sort of scratch past the surface of that but then when you do you realize that that has its own pressures as well and a lot of you know there's you know that you know, Mormons are statistically um, quite happy and the happiness research shows that um, 
that religious people in general are happier and that Mormons are kind of very happy even compared to religious people. But when you start to scratch the surface of that, you see that this is really quite a stressful thing for women as well. And it's, you know, it's almost like the pressure that we put on ourselves to kind of have this fulfilling career that they have about motherhood and that everything has to be perfect and look perfect. And it can be quite psychologically destructive for people. Yeah, I think that's really interesting talking sort of, I mean, obviously, one of the main sources of sort of anxiety and when it comes to the pursuit of happiness um for women in particular who have had children is whether you should stay at home or whether you should go back to work and whether whether which is the most selfless act and there seems to be sort of um something attached to this idea of selflessness um is is there any research that you've found about what makes people happier if you know women do tend women tend to be happier if they go back to work or if they stay at home oh that's interesting well there is some research it's kind of american research but i'm sure the principle applies um more broadly which is that um stay-at-home mothers are the most likely to be depressed and um like have genuine unhappiness and i think that people do not value being a stay-at-home parent and i think that's part of the problem and also is a very very grueling job and i think that i mean i know for myself that you know going out to work can sometimes be a break for people you know i find you know on a sort of moment to moment level personally i find being in a in an office and you know getting a coffee on your own and doing all of those things is is you know is easier than than being at home with two toddlers and yeah so, yeah, there is research to, to say that. But at the same time, I think, you know, we shouldn't really take that research too seriously because it's hard to kind of, you can't really reverse engineer happiness in that way by saying, you know, oh, stay-at-home mothers are more likely to be depressed, so I won't stay home with my with my kids. Because yeah. if that's the decision that's right for you, it doesn't really matter on a population level what's happening. And that's why I think all of these kind of happiness projects and kind of, you know, the government trying to sort of, get involved in happiness and things that will be best for our well-being is quite dodgy territory for people because I think to sort of you know look at happiness studies and say okay well these people are happier so therefore everybody should live like this is is really a hiding to nothing absolutely I kind of I guess I feel to a degree that while I'm you know hugely grateful for the fact that we live in in a time where I can you know potentially do whatever I like um I do feel there's that that adds a level of pressure in the sense that I feel like because I could go to work maybe I should go to work because I can have three kids I should stay home with my kid you know that there's so many different things that I should be doing that I could be doing the pressure on women to have it all because we can do everything now we feel like we should be doing everything and at the same time and that sort of creates a real panic so that rather than just getting on with whatever it is that we are doing we're constantly looking over our shoulder and wondering whether we'd actually be more fulfilled happier have happier more fulfilled children if we were doing it another way do you feel that I mean, is that something that you sort of encountered? Absolutely. And I think even just the way we frame the debate and, you know, even just those words, having it all, I mean, it's something that we only ever talk about when we're talking With about women. women. Yeah. And so nobody ever says to my husband, you know, oh, are you having problems having it all? Because he just has it all. You of know, course. he has a career, he has kids, he has, you know, time with them. And he's not agonising about those decisions. And I think that society kind of sets women up to really overthink these problems and to really stress about our own happiness. I mean, it's no accident that 
over 80% of um, all self-help books and all of these things are bought by women. You know, I think this is a culture which encourages women to think that we're doing something wrong and that we're at fault. And so I think, you know, it's necessarily, it's, it, that becomes um, a way in which women kind of stress out about their own happiness and feel like we're doing it wrong. And, you know, we're pointed, we're, we're told that, we're, we're often told that we are doing it wrong. Mm. And so I think that, yeah, absolutely, we, you know, even the fact that we're worrying about whether we can have it all, we're not even just thinking about these things as just things that happen that we can do or not do. You know, it's these big questions that are kind of hanging over us all the time, which I think... Do you think also that on the flip side of that, that that the fact that we are so aware of it and that we tend to have conversations with our friends about it and that we're constantly agonising over it, but at least we're doing that with other people and sort of talking through our emotions means that actually we're likely to be happier and have sort of a better mental health as a whole as opposed to men who, as a general rule, tend to be less sort of open about how they're feeling and, and, and have higher suicide rates, I believe. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's, I, I think that's definitely true. I mean, there's this kind of masculinity culture where people feel like they can't talk about, you know, what's going wrong in their lives. And I think women definitely, whether that's um, nature or nurture, I mean, women definitely are more social in the way that, that we live our lives. And I think that's... Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably what makes up for all the oppression. <laughs> and, you know, that we, um, you know, that I think that is our best shot at happiness, absolutely, that that we do tend to, to share our problems and to, to talk about things quite honestly and openly. And that should be encouraged. So in terms of a, a conclusion, if, you know, have you found the key to happiness? And if you have, please, can you share it with us? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's interesting because I mean, all just as a little aside, I mean, all the all the um, research points in the direction of you know the more you kind of agonise and pursue over happiness, and the more you sort of think about happiness and value it and pursue it, the unhappier and more stressed you become. And obviously, if you're spending a year of your life writing a book about happiness, you can't really do that without spending a lot of time thinking about it and agonising about it. So over the course of writing the book, I was really kind of proved my own point in a way that, you know, the more I thought about happiness and really kind of tried to break these things down in my head, the more stressed and anxious I became. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, in terms of a positive conclusion, the overwhelming evidence points in the direction that our happiness comes from our social connections and our relationships with other people and that what we should be doing if we want to be happy is not focusing on ourselves and those meditation sessions and yoga and self-help books but but really to be focusing on other people and really spending time with the people in our lives and really working on those those social bonds Thanks so much for joining us here today at Penguin Random House and huge thanks to Ruth Whitman whose brilliant book The Pursuit of Happiness and Why It's Making Us Anxious is out now. Please visit motherland.net for more podcasts and other stuff and follow us on Instagram at motherlandnet, on Facebook Motherland Network and Twitter Motherland Net. And I hope you can join us next time. <laughs>